Place and Time, the podcast that puts American history in its place. I'm your host and tour guide, Aaron Killian. So, through storytelling and conversation, each one of our episodes takes you on a tour of important places in American history at remarkable moments in time. And these are places that you can visit today. During our tour slash journey through history, I'm joined by a friend and fellow history nerd. Today, that friend continues to be my wife who is also a tour guide at Historic America. Molly Killian, welcome back to the podcast slash tour. So glad I made it to round two. I'm happy to have you back too, Molly. As we continue, what we're going to do in this episode, Molly, it's the second episode of a two-episode journey, and it's going to culminate in us reaching the Antietam battlefield in 1862. Mm -hmm. And once we get there, we're going to uncover the story behind the famous photographs of the dead that were taken after the battle, and then we're going to learn about the impact that they had on American history. Yeah, I feel like everyone has maybe seen these photos or at least could recognize them in a textbook. These are the photos that we're going to deal with, and along the way, again, we're going to continue to interweave the lives of America's two most famous photographers of the age, Matthew Brady and Alexander Gardner, who at this point need no introduction, right? Mm -hmm. Best friends. So let us start the tour. Are you ready? Definitely. I'm going to show you another photograph on the magic tablet here. So I'm going to pass the magic tablet over to you, and I'm going to ask you to survey this photo. What do you see here? Again, I want to know if the magic tablet can be used for personal use. That's a completely improper question, Molly. We know that the magic tablet can only be used for the good of mankind, not for personal use. So no grocery shopping at Aldi. No grocery shopping at Aldi. and No uh, trips to Europe. No trips to Europe. Uh, no watching fitness videos. This is to travel back into time and learn about the past. Only. Noted, noted. Okay, so what I see is a man that is probably a better looking Napoleon. A good-looking man. How's he dressed? Well, he has a, he's clearly in uniform, and he has that typical Napoleonic stance with the hand in his lapel. Ah, okay. So this good-looking fella that you're uh, taking a gander at, this is George McClellan. George McClellan is a very important Union general during the course of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And this photo was actually taken in Matthew Brady's Washington, D.C. gallery, which Got we it. talked about. Do you want to go to Matthew Brady's gallery and see this photo being taken? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's interact with the magic tablet and go mm-hmm. right into the story. At 34 years old, George McClellan's energy, organizational prowess, and ego were second to none. He was tasked with resuscitating and rehabilitating the Union Army in the wake of its Bull Run disaster. He succeeded. By November 1861, the turnaround was so remarkable that some papers had taken to calling him the Young Napoleon. Judging from his diminutive stature, Brady thought the moniker Little Mac was more appropriate. Brady admired McClellan's energy, his talent for self-promotion, perhaps Brady saw something of himself, and his ability to move product. McClellan had previously posed for Brady and Gardner, and his carte de visite sold well. During this second sitting, Brady posed McClellan and made small talk while Gardner busied himself with the camera. You've taken on a tremendous amount of responsibility, General. I'm pleased you found the time to return to our gallery, Brady said. The pleasure is mine, Mr. Brady. Rest assured, I can do it all. McClellan responded. He stuck his hand in between the buttons of his blouse in a purposeful imitation of Napoleon. I'm no hand with a camera, however, which is why I would like to enlist your aid, Mr. Gardner. 
My chief intelligence officer, Alan Pinkerton, says you're a good man. Gardner knew instantly where this was headed. Pinkerton was a personal friend and a fellow Scot. Together, they'd hatched a plan, and it appeared the commanding general was now on board. Brady, however, was very confused. McClellan continued, Mr. Gardner, I'd like to attach you to the Army of the Potomac in an intelligence capacity as our official photographer, provided you have no objection, Mr. Brady. Brady started. Gardner, anticipating the potential roadblock, did his best not to sound overeager. Would I be able to maintain my position at Mr. Brady's gallery as well? McClellan sounded impressed. If you believe you can do it all, sir. What did the future hold? What did Gardner do for the Army of the Potomac? Well, basically, as a photographer, he's an intelligence officer in a way. He's collecting information via photographs. Um, a lot of it is taking images of the landscape, sharing the with um, other commanders within the field. They would basically use photographs as a way to copy maps. And so it's a lot of the geography of the landscape, not so much the actual photographing of the people, but we're going to get to that. Even though the intelligence photos aren't really what Brady's interested in, Brady's interested in the photos that Gardner's going to take of the soldiers, right? Right, on the side. Because what Gardner can do with those is he can copyright them under his own name, but then he gives them to Brady to publish, right? And so everybody wins. Gardner gets to take the photos, Brady makes the money on their publishing, and it ends up being a pretty symbiotic relationship. Right, absolutely. And then what's also going to happen is Gardner isn't the only person that Brady sends out in to the field, Brady's going to send a lot of these photographic teams out and they're going to embed themselves with the great Union armies of the East that are going to take place in these big Virginia campaigns. Yeah, I was reading that each division of the Federal Army of the Potomac had its own approved civilian photographer. Oh, I mean, that's, that's a big change considering this is the first war in its entirety that's photographed. So do these men, in essence, Molly, represent kind of a a beginning of photojournalism in the United States? Exactly, exactly. This is not the first war to be photographed. There are photos from the Crimean War. There's Mm. photos from the Mexican War of 1847. But this is the first time that the extent of the war is captured on film. I mean, it's not only the intelligence photos, it's the dead, it's camp life. I was reading like 10,000 photos or something had been captured over the course of those four years. So it's really taking um, a first stab at what is war on film and what does that look like. And the idea of photojournalism is this documentary style capturing of people just being bored, people waiting, people shipping out. It's the whole life cycle of the war. And another thing that helps us understand this beginning of photojournalism is the campaign that it began in. Because what happens is McClellan takes over command of the Army of the Potomac. And then eventually, after a lot of prodding from the Lincoln administration, McClellan's going to take the army back out to fight and he's going to try and capture Richmond. And he gets awful close to capturing Richmond. And how he does this is he puts his army on boats and he floats it down the Virginia coastline, drops it off on the coast, and they march up and try and take Richmond from the southeast, but that campaign to get so close to Richmond and almost capture it is foiled by none other than Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee becomes commander of the Confederate forces that are defending Richmond, and then there's this series of battles in this uh, uh, peninsula campaign that are called the Seven Days. Mm -hmm. And during this campaign of the Seven Days fighting and all the movements on the peninsula, that's when these photojournalists go to work and they start capturing their images. So this is the beginning of photojournalism in earnest during the Civil War 
1862, McClellan's going to get beat in that series of battles, and he's going to retreat back to the coastline, put his army back on ships, and Lee is going to take his army north. Lee's going to try and capitalize on this momentum of turning back the Union Army, and as he moves north, he defeats the uh, Union Army again at a battle called Second Manassas, which was a sequel to First Manassas, and then he's going to take his army into Maryland, and that movement into Maryland is going to culminate in the Battle of Antietam, because eventually what happens is McClellan's going to catch up with Lee, and they're going to fight this desperate battle just outside of this town called Sharpsburg, and the town of Sharpsburg is nearby a creek called Antietam Creek. So that's where the battle's going to get its name from. Deadliest day in um, U.S. history, right? Exactly. And at the end of the battle, you're going to have approximately 23,000 casualties in total. So it's a a massive bloodletting. And one of the reasons it was so destructive is because Lee's army was in a really desperate position. They were pinned up against the Potomac River, and so there was no place for them to retreat to. So the uh, Confederate army had to fight very fiercely in order to survive, and McClellan knew that he had a great opportunity here to potentially defeat Lee's army uh, once and for all totally right right? so it it turned into a pretty pivotal struggle so I want to show you a picture Molly I want you to look at the tablet here and I want you to scroll up and there's a picture of men and a bridge what do you see in this picture a painting rather than a photo Mm -hmm. it looks like the Union and the Confederates squaring off lots of people a couple people dead, you know, your traditional war painting, I suppose. And we have to show you a painting here because, like you said, we can't show you a photo of battle because right. you couldn't capture motion in photographs back then because it would be so blurry. So all we have of the battle in terms of uh, memorialization of it are these paintings. This is a Courier and Ives print. But what you see there is the fight for Burnside Bridge during mm-hmm. the Battle at Antietam. I want you to take us to the battle using that painting, but we're not going to show up in the midst of the fighting. We're going to show up well back from the fighting, and we're going to see the battle from Alexander Gardner's perspective, because he was well back from the front lines, but he could sort of see the battle mm-hmm. at a distance. So let's go to where Gardner is right now. The distant roar was unlike any noise Gardner had ever heard. Although he'd been embedded with the army for several months and had previously experienced the distant sounds of cannon fire, what was happening up ahead in and around Sharpsburg, Maryland was something different. It was September 17, 1862, and from where he sat on the hillside behind McClellan's headquarters, Gardner had a panoramic view of the battlefield at least the parts of it that weren't shrouded in smoke. Nearby, he could see hilltop signalmen wigwagging flags as several horsemen thundered down the Hagerstown Pike. He looked ahead and could just make out the small figure of McClellan standing among his staff, his eyes encased in a pair of binoculars. Gardner looked again at the battlefield, now completely obscured. He knew when the smoke cleared and the roar died down, he might have the chance to take his camera into that field of destruction and see what the battle had wrought. As we 
leave Alexander Gardner behind, Molly, we know that he's going to venture to the scene of battle eventually to photograph the wreckage of war because the Union is going to win the day and they're going to hold on to the field. So that means that Gardner's going to get to go to the field and capture what happened at the battle using his photographic equipment, right? right. So he's going to go and photograph the dead. In anticipation of him heading to the battlefield to photograph the dead, I want to talk about a couple things. First off, I want to give you a Reader's Digest version of what happened at Antietam. It was a battle in three parts. It moved from right to left across the battlefield. It started up on the Union right, and there was a clash around uh, a cornfield and a church between Stonewall Jackson's troops and multiple corps of the Union Army, and it was a mass bloodletting, very violent. Mm -hmm. And then the battle shifted to the center of the field, and there was this sunken road that was struggled over and would eventually fill up with dead Confederate bodies. These are these are images that we probably know and we can recall because of the photographs. Exactly, of what Gardner captures when he ventures to the battle after it concludes the battlefield. And then finally, the battle concludes down near Burnside Bridge, and that's where you saw the painting before, right? right? So it's a battle in three parts, and that means that there's going to be bodies sprawled over a great area here, and Gardner's going to try and capture as as many of these images of the dead bodies as he can. And you made an interesting point earlier, which was Gardner was able to capture these photos because he was with the winning army, right, the Union, and most of the photos to come out of the Civil War were taken by Union photographers, and that's because they had a a shorter geographic distance to cover. Because they were operating in the Eastern Theater of War in Virginia. Right, exactly, and so they had these clunky wagons and they were able to to move relatively quickly between battle scenes. And also the Union Army had more money for supplies. And, you know, the South was blockaded for a lot of their their supplies and were not able to afford photography equipment at a certain point. So that's one of the reasons why Gardner and Brady were so successful. They were positioned well because of the Union Army. Following the Battle of Antietam, Alexander Gardner and an assistant are going to go to the battlefield and they're going to document the wreckage of battle, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to photograph death. And as they are approaching the battlefield that day, one of the concepts that I think they might have had in their head, because it was a very prevalent concept in the 1800s, was this notion of the good death. Right, right. What did the good death mean to an average American of this time before the war? We die around our families. We die surrounded by people who love us. Mother is the nurse. Father says prayers. Somebody notes the exact time that we die. Even if it's sad and plenty of people died at, uh, of, of disease and young, etc. But the reality is you still have your family and it is orderly and it is arranged in a neat little box that's just tied up with string in the sense that death has a place and a time and a system in order to transition from life to death. And what I think we will find with Gardner and his assistant as they approach the battlefield, what they will see flies in the face of this notion of the good death. If the work hadn't kept them so busy and focused, the horror of it may well have overcome them, but there was a job to be done. It was September 19th, two days after the battle, and Gardner had an assistant on hand. Like Gardner, James Gibson was doing double photographic duty, simultaneously working for Brady's Gallery and the Union Army. He was also a fellow Scot, and his accent reminded Gardner of home, especially comforting on such a disquieting day. They rose early, rumbling toward the battlefield in a black hooded wagon, a mobile darkroom. 
the unique vehicle would help them document the battlefield's grotesqueries. They drove slowly for fear of damaging the many glass plates contained within their wagon. They were not alone on the road. The two turnpikes leading into the battlefield were choked with stragglers, displaced townsfolk, and military personnel. Many had a purpose. Some simply wandered. Caught up in the motley tide, the Scotsmen soon encountered their first bodies. Corpses had been stacked up along the roadside to allow vehicles to pass. Although burial teams from the Northern Army were about their work, scores of bodies still littered the ground. Mostly rebel enemies, the last priority. Some of the bodies were already blackening, and all were bloated underneath the remorseless sun. What first hit both men was the unquestionable reek of death. It was awful, omnipresent and penetrating. Tears came, a reaction to a stench so bad it physically stung the eyes. Gardner daubed a handkerchief and drove the wagon on in search of a suitable place to begin, taking pause to occasionally dry heave. They took photos for four days. The two men worked out a routine. The task gave them focus. Gardner was the man behind the stereoscopic camera, choosing what images to capture while calculating light and aperture. Gibson would go between the camera and the wagon, braving the stultifying heat underneath the tarp to prepare and care for the wet plates with a mixture of chemicals. The chemical smells, normally unpleasant, provided a distraction. The swarming flies which buzzed and crawled about the corpses were attracted to the collodion coating of every wet plate. The process was fickle, and every moment demanded the unceasing care and attention of both men. Rebel corpses drew the focus of their camera, strewn at the base of fence posts, lying in open fields, carpeting the wagon roads. The armies had fought ferociously over bridges and cornfields, by creeksides and hillsides. Of particular note was a small white church, around which rebel artillerists lay mangled. Then again there was the middle of the battlefield, which was cut by a sunken lane where the bodies were stacked like misshapen matchsticks. Elsewhere, a rebel colonel's horse, ghostly gray in color, had died in such a lifelike pose that one might expect it to rise up and trot off. Gibson was the first to see the horse. He pointed it out to Gardner with a hand that was darkened by silver nitrate. The horse's head was craned toward the camera, staring at both men. Unbelievable. Simply unbelievable. As we leave Gardner and Gibson behind on the battlefield, Molly, I want to show you one of the photographs that they took of the dead on the battlefield. And it's a very well-known photograph. It's of a sunken road, and the road is filled with mangled corpses. What do you make of this photograph? That is a that is a lonely place to die. That is um, the opposite of having family surround you. That's the opposite of what is, quote-unquote, the good death. Instead, these are young men dying very violently, very far away from home. On the battlefield, nobody is stopping their watch to figure out when so-and-so died. Nobody's writing it down. Their bodies are stacked. They are put into mass graves, sometimes unmarked. Rigor mortis sets in. They are bloated from the sun and maybe unrecognizable, so 
Families might try to find their sons later, but they can't because there's not good record keeping at this time. Not what a mother would want to see for her son. The Civil War changed the entire notion of how we think about what is a good death. It's, it changed, changes the rituals and conventions associated with death. After Gardner takes these photos, Molly, they're going to be developed, obviously, and then eventually they will be put on display in rather short order up in Matthew Brady's New York studio. Remember in the last episode, we talked about Brady's dreams for his New York studio, mm-hmm. his New York gallery, and what his grand gallery was going to look like, his palace sure. of light. I say we go and we take a look at it ourselves, don't you? Let's go. And as we use the magic tablet once more, we're back in New York City. It's October of 1862 and Brady's newest exhibition, The Dead of Antietam, has opened and it is attracting lines that circle the block. Everybody is interested in going inside Brady's Palace of Light to see the darkness that he has put on display. Matthew Brady's wife, Julia, caught him before he left the house. Beaming, she read aloud from the New York Times. His latest exhibit was garnering much attention. Given the subject, however, she kept her voice restrained. She read evenly. We recognize the battlefield as a reality, but it stands as a remote one. It is very different when the hearse stops at your own door and the corpse is carried out over your own threshold. Mr. Brady has done something to bring home to us the terrible reality and earnestness of war. If he has not brought bodies and laid them in our dooryards and along the streets, he has done something very like it. There is a terrible fascination about it that draws one near these pictures and makes him loathe to leave them. Trudging along the sidewalk, Brady soon arrived at his Palace of Light. His gallery bestrode Broadway's 700 block near 10th Street, just opposite A.T. Stewart's massive department store and the cavernous interior of Grace Church. It was high visibility and high traffic, just as he liked it. Although it had been open for two years, this exhibit was drawing the largest sustained crowds to date. This morning there were already people lined up outside, respectable-looking men in suits and bowler hats, and women in hoop skirts and bonnets queuing up at his gallery door. The small placard read simply, The Dead of Antietam. Within the hour, the groups of onlookers were admitted. They began making their way up to the gallery floor, lit with the gilded gas fixtures. The patrons moved between the images, artfully displayed throughout the lavish interior space. Individuals took their turn to step in for a closer inspection of each image, occasionally gasping at the horror. Much like the people who had silently explored the Crystal Palace exhibition over a decade ago, Brady recognized a similar awe among the guests visiting his Palace of Light. A marvel of the age, he thought to himself. Silence was the sound of terrible fascination. Brady stood at the edge of the gallery floor. He thought of Gardner and that fateful day of McClellan's proposal. The benefit was now evident. He currently had multiple photographic teams embedded within the vast Union armies of the East, capturing historic imagery of this fundamental and astounding war. The work came at great, even ruinous expense, but Brady had a sense of the moment and pressed on. 
Unfortunately, the importance of the work alone couldn't compensate his photographers in the field. Rumblings over pay had begun. Although he may have been half-blind, Brady was not deaf to their concerns. He struggled with it in the confines of his private offices. Don't they understand the opportunity here? He thought. When the stress became too much, he could always adjourn to the gallery floor, that sumptuous gallery floor, and see the hushed throngs transfixed by the images his gallery had published. The scene soothed him. Occasionally, Brady would glimpse at an image himself, but never for too long, lest the memories of his own terrible experience at First Manassas came rushing back. Another thing he would rather avoid. like that photographic exhibit that Brady put on was extremely popular. Right. Why do you think, beyond the fascination of the photos themselves, so many people might have been drawn there? It occurs to me that in the 1800s, Americans already had somewhat of a fascination with death and photography. Tell me about it. As a culture, the 1800s, very interested in death, specifically photographing dead people. Interesting. And today, that's weird. We would not do that. But back then, it was very commonplace. From the mid-19th century through the 20th century, people would hire a photographer to capture pictures of dead loved ones, which they would then share with grieving family and friends, just like the carte de seats. And the photographer would come to the house, pose the dead person, and it had to be fresh before rigor mortis set in, and try to hide any signs of illness and take the photograph. And these were called post-mortem photographs. And sometimes it was a single child posed in a bed as if sleeping. Sometimes living relatives would pose with the body themselves, like a sibling or a spouse. And then later, they would actually pose them in activity. So they might show a young boy playing with tops or somebody playing cards as if they were still alive. Um, But at the, the, the goal for all of this was basically to keep this precious picture whether it was on a mantle or in a box, as a memento and as a way for the the grief-stricken family to really reconcile life and death and to remember the person that passed from their lives. Maybe they put a baby's curl in the box or a favorite memento or trinket, and the photos help them grieve. It was an attempt at closure, just like funerals in a way. It's, it's very hard for us to look at these photos because we think something's wrong but in their own right they have this this melancholy beauty and if you understand why it in a way can make sense so molly you've talked about how in the 1800s america's fascination with death and photography made these photographs an easy sell for matthew brady right people were already interested in the topic but these photos that gardner took they add a new layer because they show death in a different light. They Mm -hmm. show mangled bodies. They show corpses that have been destroyed in battle. And so one of the things that Brady wants to do with these photos is he's hoping to make some money off of them. He wants to sell copies of the photos to a interested public, Mm -hmm. but they're not going to sell all that well. People actually are more interested in looking at them. They're not interested in buying them. But the real impact, the real lasting impact of these photos are what they do for war photography and war journalism going forward. You think about what Alexander Gardner begins here is going to continue throughout the history of photography and some of the most famous photos that are ever taken are war photos. What are some famous war photos that you think about? Yeah, I think of the raising of the flag on Mount Sarbacci during World War II. You think about some of the really disturbing images we see from the 
war in Vietnam mm-hmm. as well. Where does that line of DNA begin? It begins with Alexander Gardner and the notion that photographic teams could be embedded and not only capture camp life, but capture the ugliness and the reality of war. Right? Yeah, and photographs also were tools in the in the sense of they could be used for propaganda. Newspapers would publish them. Um, I was reading accounts of mangled soldiers selling carte visites of their broken bodies to raise money after they became an amputee. Doctors would photograph their surgeries to teach future medical students how to do certain procedures. So photographs in the Civil War not only created photojournalism, it created this entire industry. So the story doesn't end here, however. We have to figure out how things tie up with Brady and Gardner. So in order to do that, I'm going to show you one more photographic set here. It's actually two photographs here on the Magic Tablet. Tell me what you see in these photographs, Molly. Looking inside of a tent, and you have a stern-looking Lincoln and a, a shorter McClellan in conversation. Do you want to see where the photograph was taken and when it was taken? Yes, please. Let us travel there by using the Magic Tablet, and we're going to go back to the Antietam battlefield in October of 1862. <laughs> A few weeks after the battle, Gardner returned to the Union encampment. Gardner came to document President Lincoln's visit to General McClellan's headquarters. It was no secret that Lincoln and McClellan were often at odds. Lincoln disapproved of McClellan's glacial pace of movement, and McClellan thought Lincoln a prairie primitive. Now the primitive had come to stir the glacier to action. Upon arrival, Gardner recognized the landscape scarred by war. He could see the church and the town beyond, the field still littered with the detritus of battle. Though the bodies had been buried, death hung in the air. The horse was gone, but the image still hung in his mind. Gardner searched for McClellan's command tent. Lincoln, hard to miss, was already on the scene. Standing six foot four and topped with his trademark stovepipe hat, he towered above the surrounding officers. Gardner called out, Gentlemen, I'd like to capture an image of the entire group. Can I have President Lincoln and General McClellan at the center, please? As Gardner issued directions and posed the lot of them, Lincoln stood directly opposite McClellan. The contrast in height between the two men was near comical. Gardner drew close to the president and offered him the use of a camp chair so that he could subtly steady himself for the photo. Lincoln smiled at him. I hope I can be still long enough. I feel General McClellan should have no problem on his end, but I may sway in the breeze a bit. Later, Gardner posed the president and his general, seated inside McClellan's command tent. All day, the tension between the two men had been palpable, and Gardner sensed that both were eager to confront the other. The photographer turned to leave, momentarily pausing at the tent flap to catch a snippet of their conversation. McClellan spoke clearly. You may find those who will go faster than I, Mr. President, but it is very doubtful that you will find many who will go further. Gardner retreated, thinking, Wouldn't it be possible to go further and move faster? Gardner wanted to see the war won as much as any Union man, and while he appreciated the opportunity McClellan had given him, he couldn't help but reflect on his own situation. 
He thought of the recent newspaper article which praised the searing battlefield imagery he had captured. The article referred to those images as Brady's. It was true that Gardner had the copyrights, but as publisher, it was Brady's name which had become officially attached to them. As a result, Brady was the one to receive the plaudits. This was the manner in which photographer-publisher arrangements worked, and although Brady had always given him respect and relative autonomy, Gardner wrestled internally. How to balance a sense of gratitude with his own sense of purpose? How to move farther and faster? Then there was the issue of pay. As Gardner turned it all around in his head, he climbed back into the black hooded wagon. He held the wet plate in his hand, the undeveloped photo of Lincoln and McClellan's meeting, already coming into focus in his mind's eye. So Lincoln would end up firing McClellan. Lincoln thought McClellan was just too timid a general to command the Army of the Potomac, but their story wouldn't end there. They would actually run against one another for the presidency in 1864, and Lincoln would beat McClellan again. So Lincoln had the last laugh twice. But that's probably not what you want to know about, Molly. What's your question? So what was the decision that Gardner came to, and how did that change his relationship to Brady? Well, what Gardner decides to do is break off from Matthew Mm. Brady. Gardner's going to go his own way. As has been alluded to in the previous vignettes, there was a tension building between Gardner and Brady. Understandably. Understandably so, exactly, because Gardner has all of the copyrights on these photographs, but Brady's the one that's publishing them. He's getting the credit. It's his name, right. And so even though Gardner is very grateful to Brady for the opportunities that were given Gardner in his career, Gardner reaches a point where he feels in order to go further, he needs to go further on his own. Time to leave the nest. So what he does is he leaves Brady's employee. He opens up his own studio with his brother in Washington, D.C. on 7th and D Street, just a couple Mm. blocks away from where Brady's studio is. And then it'll be interesting to chart how their paths continue to parallel one another throughout the remainder of the Civil War. Gardner and Brady will both go to the Gettysburg battlefield a year later and document the field of battle after Gettysburg has taken place, and they will both continue to gather photographs of camp life and the successive campaigns of the Civil War all the way up until the end of the conflict. And then at the end of the war, they're going to try and sell their photographs not only to the public but also to Congress. Was it an amicable breakup? We assume it was an amicable breakup. They never talked much about it, and they never really talked bad about one another after the breakup. The only time they really had a squabble was after the war when they're trying to sell their photographs to Congress. Both of them are making the case to Congress that, hey, it was really me that had this idea to go out and document the war via photography. So the intellectual property in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like who can claim the most credit for this great photographic history of the Civil War? Who was really the man responsible for it? They're going to fight over that. In terms of public opinion, it's going to be Brady that wins that fight. Because when you think about... He's the name that we think of. Exactly, right? When you think about the Civil War, Brady's the first name that pops in your mind when it comes to Civil War photography. But interestingly, in terms of their post-war career, who did better for themselves, it was Alexander Gardner. Alexander Gardner, he goes out west, and he will photograph the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. He'll take many famous photographs of Native Americans. He has a really successful western photographic journey. And then eventually, he gets out of photography, and he gets into the insurance business. As one does. And he dies a wealthy man. Good for him. Matthew Brady... 
dies poor. He dies poor. He travels a different path. He has some success post-war, but basically his finances slowly collapse like a flan in a cupboard. And it will not end well for Matthew Brady. But we don't want to talk too much about Matthew Brady's demise because that's going to be the subject for an upcoming Historic America project. project is our new Historic America YouTube series. We call it Dead, White, and Blue. It is a fun and fascinating video series which chronicles the final chapter in the lives of famous Americans. We look at how they died, where they are buried, and everything else above and below ground. One of the first episodes focuses on none other than Matthew Brady, so give it a look. That's our show for today, everybody. A quick note, if you'd like to see the photographs Molly and I referenced in today's episode, they and all the other show notes can be found on the podcast section of our Historic America website, www.historicamerica.org backslash podcast. Also, make sure to look out for the bonus episode where we talk to Civil War photography expert John Milliker Jr. If you want to support us financially, please become a podcast member by using the Patreon link on our page. And if you shop our suggested reading list using the Amazon links on our website, we get a portion of the proceeds. Both of these things are a big help. Thank you again to Molly Killian for being my co-nerd today, and thanks to Steve Killian for being an audio mixmaster extraordinaire, and most of all, thank you for listening. Uh, You may have noticed that these past two episodes on the Dead of Antietam, different format from our first episodes on Duke Ellington. That's because we're a young podcast, and we're trying to keep iterating and making improvements. So until next we meet, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. Your feedback is deeply, deeply appreciated. We also wouldn't be mad if you shared us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with your friends, family, and even your casual acquaintances. If you want to learn more about Historic America, visit www.historicamerica.org. Remember, we're a tour company, and we've got a great menu of historic multi-sensory tours, which include unique Civil War battlefield experiences at First Bull Run and Antietam, as well as others. In our next podcast episode, we leave Civil War photography behind us, but not the Civil War. Our next place in time will take us on a journey inside Abraham Lincoln's White House.